1: Hello and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Ziad Musa, the CEO and founder of Tulua. Tolua is a healthy beverage startup out of Southern California that creates organic, cold-pressed, functional shots, as well as other wellness products. Their most popular product is their Ginger Shots, a two-ounce drink that contains Peruvian ginger blended with fruit juices. The products are sold throughout the states in grocery stores like Whole Foods and Winn-Dixie. Ziad spent the early part of his career as a biomedical engineer before making the switch to startups. He founded Toluwa in 2015 with the belief that if you could easily get functional drinks into people's hands, then maybe they could avoid some of the challenges of the healthcare industry. Ziad, welcome to American Muslim Project. Can you tell us a little bit about Toluwa? Yeah, sure. You know,
2: Toluwa is a company that specializes in making better for you immunity shots. And we, we really embrace the ethos of, you know, let food be your medicine. We've got the most exceptional line of wellness and immunity shots to help people start the day off right, we started off by having the most powerful line of ginger shots, organic ginger shots with only two ingredients. That's all you'll ever need to know. You just read the label, and that's it. Um, as I was starting the project, you, you, you know, I follow the science and you know the body of evidence behind the the medicinal benefits of ginger are huge. And Vong, my wife, is in 22 years at Pfizer. When I started, I told her, "Hey, can can you find me some scientific research about the benefits of ginger?" And you know, she came back and she was like, "I'm blown away. I'm I'm going to start taking ginger shots every day because, and, and this is something that a lot of." Um, a lot of cultures understand, you know, when we would get sick growing up, you know, my mom would make us ginger tea. And it's, it's it's a very common herbal and holistic remedy in so many different cultures. We're we're kind of coming to this late in the game as far as the, the U.S. market. But we make up for it in, in our approach. I mean, our shots are very strong, very strong. Um, and then we started to expand into other functional ingredients like turmeric and apple cider vinegar uh, with our line of Vitality Shots. And we then introduced something that we think is going to be huge in terms of cultural awareness uh, on a general generational level, um, which is digestive health and gut health. So we, we launched a line of probiotic shots.
1: Fantastic. And can you just tell me the mission of the company and your personal mission as well?
2: Yeah, you know, our mission is just to make it easier, more convenient, and cost effective to be able to consume products that are better for you. But in, in this particular case, that also have beneficial function and incorporate them into their day to day lives. People consume food that's not great for you because it's easily accessible. And so the, the mission is to make it equally as accessible for people to access foods and beverages that are good for you, that actually will, will help you. It, it's in line with, with my lifelong mission, which is to try to help people live better lives and, and more fulfilling lives and in a small way. I, I mean, I think that's, it's a very small impact, but if it's repeated many times over sure. and over a long period of time, and, and if we do it to as many people as we can, it will have a difference. It will it will have an impact on people's lives, especially cost of healthcare and access to healthcare. And you know, it really is putting the power back in consumers' hands instead of you know them being along for the
1: ride. I, I'm really interested in your in your story in that not only are you doing a startup in the food and beverage category, but you're creating a new category and you're creating a new product in a new category.
2: It was not easy. It's always helpful to I guess be a little naive going into an endeavor like this because I think had I known then what I know now about how difficult it is to launch a new product, launch a new brand, but then also innovate a new category, It you know those are monumental tasks, each of them in their own right. Um, but then when you combine all that, it's just uh, you have to be naive to jump into it. You know, full full bore, and and I I will admit to being completely naive to just how difficult this industry can be.
1: Yeah. What well, what are some of the hurdles that you've had to overcome? Education is probably
2: the biggest one I, I would say that we've had to overcome, and and that education is both education of the consumer, education of the buyers. You know, there's there's a huge amount of inertia in in this space because nobody's really rewarded for taking a big risk in you know giving a never heard of before brand uh, shot at a extraordinarily valuable real estate i mean you think of, of a supermarket or any type of retail grocer every linear inch that they have is is just expensive real estate and they got to get products in that sell well that will resonate with customers and they are risk averse and if there's something that hasn't really fully been established as a category they kind of throw their hands up. And if they throw their hands up, well, then forget it. You know, (laughs) look at it later, you know, next, next year, maybe two years. And and that's the pace of this industry.
1: And how did you convince your first buyers to put you on the shelf? What was that conversation like?
2: Oh my gosh. Our, our first customers Whole foods and wow. I mean, that's pretty impressive. It was a different time. I mean, it was, it was an entirely different time. I don't think that it's that easy anymore and not that it was easy but um it was actually it was great there was a cherry buzz auction for a lunch with the president of the sopac region of whole foods um and and my business partner at the time he like well let's let's bid on this and you know let's let's go to lunch um we had a fantastic meeting they immediately got it we had an amazing lunch and uh we, I still remember we, we ended up walking all around the Newport Beach store, like trying to figure out where where we'd go. And uh, that was actually our very first store. Um, actually, this is a funny story. So the VP of purchasing was on vacation when she came back. Her assistant kind of scheduled a, a window in which we could have a meeting. Um, the date that she picked out was smack dab of, Our vacation where we were going to be in Hawaii. So this was this was at a time when our oldest was three and our youngest was just not even one yet. And I said, "Well, can we do like the day after I get back? Literally the day after get back." And she looks at the calendar. She's like, "Well, the next available date is is two weeks beyond that." Mm -hmm. And and so I was like, "Okay, keep that date." Uh, I I flew out. I left uh, along with the kids in Hawaii. I, I flew in for that meeting I took the meeting and I flew back that day. Wow and, but at the time I thought okay well if you we missed this golden opportunity like you do you just don't want to let it wait she she grilled us I mean she had a lot of tough questions for us but at the end of it she was like yep, this is great let's do this and from that like word go it was about, 2 months before we got on shelf but uh yeah so long story short yeah that's that's
1: <laughs> and fong was okay with that yeah, well yeah
2: i mean i don't think she would have been if we didn't land the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: um once you're in the store then what are you thinking about as an entrepreneur you know how do you how do you get people to put them buy the product and know what the product is can you talk about that phase of of the of the circuit yeah,
2: this was a situation where because it was our first account, because it was my first foray into food and beverage, I had no experience whatsoever. Whole Foods is an amazing partner; they're they're an amazing customer, and and uh, they believe in the vision and and they understand you know what our objective is. It's their mission and objective as well. So that that shared mission is really critical when you're uh, getting going, especially a young startup with no resources and you you lean heavily on the folks that know the industry that know the ins and outs and and we did once we got in it was all it was all hustle and scrapping i mean we i literally drove and delivered to all the whole foods i knew who all the buyers were uh, i knew when we were getting orders um we were I fulfilled the orders, put it on the shelf. I would then set up and run demos and talk to tons of customers. And, and it was pretty funny early on. Like, So people don't have filters when they're giving the feedback, which is, which is great. But at the same time, it can be pretty um, – you have to have a thick skin yeah. and, and ability to say, well, it's okay. It's just one person. They didn't particularly like it.
1: Any, anything <laughs> but, stand out in
2: your head? Oh, sure. There are lots of instances where somebody tried it and was like, oh my God, this is too strong. <laughs> but it is. I mean, it's, it's meant to be functional. And, and in order to achieve the functionality, you have to have a higher concentration of the, of the beneficial ingredients. And that's, that's what it's all about.
1: It's amazing, and, and your role as CEO, uh, you know, I imagine, yeah, you're running the company, but I, I saw that you're the you're the product guy as well. Like you you're you're the crazy guy coming up with different in mixes and ingredients. Can you can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, I um I I enjoy innovation. The food and beverage space is an area that lends itself to a lot more innovation than than we currently have. I mean. Look, I I see what certain people are doing with uh, plant based foods and, and alternative meats and and some of the, the plant based milk alternatives. That is amazing and incredible, and they're they're truly inspirations to me going in and trying to develop new products and coming up with with cool uh, innovative products that can deliver on our mission. It's always got to be about the the mission, which is delivering better for you products that are ultra clean label that, you know, there's no question about what's going into it. And, and people can feel comfortable and confident that, you know, it's not loaded with sugar or any of that. Can,
1: can you talk about this definition of clean label? Um, Because we also seeing it in in the pet care sector that I work in, that there's a big trend of, of clean label products for your for your pets. Um, What does clean label mean and why why did that trend kind of emerge?
2: Well, you you know, it's back to that notion of controlling what you put into your body so that you have less of a chance or, or less probability of breaking down. So clean label just means that we don't use any type of preservatives. And for us, it means that we use products that you can source yourself and you can make it yourself. What we offer is a commitment to the – we source the highest quality ingredients and and we provide convenience. So what what we save you is time and effort.
1: Yeah. So essentially when you look at the label, there's not a 27-letter ingredient, right?
2: Yeah, we take it we take it even beyond that. It, you know, there's that was sort of the beginning of the clean label movement, which is okay, take the preservatives out and and don't don't include things that are really difficult to pronounce and are synthetically engineered in order to achieve shelf stability or you know, extend the shelf life or prevent you know, one thing from breaking down or allow it to homogenize better so you don't get separation in the bottle. Those those kinds of things. But, you know, for us, it, it's a lot more than just that. For us, everything that we do is organic, non-GMO. We, we avoid any type of um, anything that I wouldn't want to really feed my kids. I wouldn't want to put in my products.
1: Well, why, why is this health and wellness space booming right now? What's driving all of that? I mean, there are some very big systemic problems in the United States with
2: the delivery of health care. Everything from how it's delivered to you know how accessible it is for a growing part of the population, and you know to be honest with you, um, what we've seen is that it was very heavily driven by millennials. Millennials were not spending on homes and cars and and other material things. They were they were spending money on experiential things, and they were recognizing that hey, I don't I can't afford to pay for health insurance, so I'm going to take these wellness products instead.
1: Oh, very. Um,
2: they are a very big driver of a lot of our growth.
1: That's fascinating. I, I didn't even think about putting that together. Um, it's been a year now since COVID reared its ugly head. How's that impacted your business?
2: You know, interestingly for us, it's, we've just seen growth across all channels for us, not surprisingly. There were some uh, supply chain issues early on, and the supply chain issues were just due to inability for a distributor to actually keep up with the demand. And we're talking like record-breaking demand. You know, we had like these large front-end caps uh, by the checkout stands, and I would go into these stores, and I would find them completely empty. Wow.
1: Is this because people were trying to stay healthy and well because COVID was around? Is that, is that the association? Initially, I thought it was because people were not buying, people were not going to the stores. That's what
2: I thought. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm getting ready to see this week's report where we have zero sales. Um, but it was exactly the opposite. Wow. It was that we just could not get the product into the stores, onto the shelf fast enough to keep up with the demand. And week after week, it was record numbers, record numbers. The other side effects is that, you know, we never really focused on online business, but that has organically taken off into a very nice part of our business. Oh, that's great. Uh, Yeah. And as a matter of fact, that's that's the next, you know, as a startup, you kind of have to focus resources. um, And, you know, we now recognize that that channel is completely untapped, but a huge opportunity for us, especially since we get an opportunity to directly engage and interact with our customers. And, and we'll have the ability to do that on a go-forward basis. So.
1: We're going to take a quick break. When we return, Ziad shares his thoughts about what it's like dealing with airport security as a frequent flyer. You're listening to American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Ziad Musa, the CEO and founder of Tulua, a beverage startup out of Southern California that creates wellness drinks. Ziad grew up in New England in the 1980s and 1990s. I asked him what it was like for him as a son of Saudi and Egyptian immigrants. I have to say
2: I loved it. I lived a really sheltered life. You know, I think that uh, my parents instilled in us a very strong sense of who we were and that nothing anybody can say about you will change who you are. And it was all fine until the first Gulf War. That was an eye-opening experience for me. I'd never gotten any fights in school at all. And and then that happened, and it was crazy. I was almost getting in a fight almost every day. And, and it was because- What, what people, was it about? I mean, people were saying the most outrageous stuff I'd ever heard right to my face. These were people who I thought were my friends. You know, the thing that, surprised me the most was, I guess, the acceptance of some of the overt racism that happened during that period. I remember somebody had had printed out this horrific cartoon uh, about a picture of an Arab man on a camel and a missile going towards him. They plastered them all over the school. And, you know, teachers were going in and out of doors, pushing right past them every day. The first day that I saw this, I took it right to the dean of students office and I asked her, this is horrible. How can you accept this? And she she kind of chuckled and she said, I'm not sure what's wrong. Mm. I was blown away. I, this was in New Hampshire. Uh, this was in Manchester, New Hampshire in the early 90s. So it was a different time. But uh, yeah, that was the first time that I really experienced something like that in my life.
1: Did it get better, worse for you as you got gotten older and in the business world and and whatnot?
2: I, I think it was a it was a period in time and and it definitely was like a spike right around the beginning of the first Gulf War and then it, it normalized and I, I don't like to get caught up in in sort of uh, dwelling over that fact but you know I see uh, certain situations that were definitely not all right and and you know I think if you were to replace you know my individual background and and religious beliefs with somebody else or somebody else's you know ethnic background people would just be flabbergasted but for some reason it was just acceptable um you know we would see shows that and movies that would come out and just completely villainizing muslims and arabs and 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 lumping us all together that was the other thing that just kind of blew me away it's like there's you know one point six billion muslims all over the world in every country and and it's like but here it's just kind of like just broad brush but yeah i don't think that i ever really felt anything up until 9 11 and then things did change for me and i was traveling a lot at the time and it was it was very difficult it was very difficult for for me because my Uh, i would always get random checked Regardless, right, no, what, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah, regardless of of which airport where I was going, domestic, international, you name it, I got a hundred percent random checked. And most people probably don't remember this, but uh, right after nine eleven, there were uh, multiple security checks. There was one at the regular TSA check, but then there was the one at the gate, and, and I would get the double. Oh man.
1: <laughs> How did that make you feel? Like what would what, go through your mind? Part of me understood it. Part of me
2: really, truly understood it. The way that I was able to just not allow it to affect me was to think about what would happen in any other country if somebody from some other belief came in and did that same thing in that country. I mean, I think you would see atrocities far, far worse and, and far more overt. And so it's... I think at some point you just have to understand that human nature um, can lead to some pretty bad policies in in times of extreme stress and duress and mourning of of that kind. But it, it was it was a shocking moment for our entire nation, and you know some people handled it better than others, and and some people reflected uh, upon it and and tried to use it as a growing experience, and other people tried to use it as a as a moment to to sort of uh, divide the country.
1: Your wife is Vietnamese, yeah, and um, your children—that means—are quite multicultural. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I'm just wondering, you know, just have you have they faced or your wife faced anything regards to COVID um, and all the anti. Asian bias that's been going on and and if so you know what how do you talk to your kids about about that kind of stuff or even like the Muslim ban or maybe they're, they're kind of young but I'm just wondering
2: yeah no that's that's a great question I have to say fortunately where we live and, and you know because everybody's under quarantine there's not a lot of traveling and going outside of like our immediate uh, community um it's a very diverse part of Southern California. So um, we're, we're extremely fortunate that we haven't experienced any of that either directly or, or indirectly. But I do remember when the the Muslim ban came around, my son was still going to preschool and, and I would pick him up and we'd be listening to NPR on the way home. And it's sometimes easy to forget that, you know, they're sponges and he was absorbing everything. And one day he asked me if we were going to have to go to jail. And it was, yeah, it was one of those moments that gave me a pit in my stomach and it was all I could do to not cry. Um, But that was a powerful moment for me. And I had to explain to him that, no, we're not going to go to jail. Um, And that moments like these happen, but
1: that was a tough conversation to have with a four-year-old did you believe that did you believe that that we wouldn't be going to jail at some point under his administration i did i i still believed in the goodness of
2: the american people and and the belief in fairness and you know the lessons that we learned from the japanese internment in uh world war 2 my belief started to fray a little bit and crack as I started to see like some of the true polling data of, you know, what people, you know, how many people actually supported fully and almost unconditionally all the policies of the past administration.
1: Yeah. It's definitely tough to swallow for sure. Yeah. Yeah. How has everything that that's happened over the last couple of years, or even, you know, your adult life. um, How has that informed you as, as a leader, both at a business, you know, within your family, within your community?
2: I think I try to listen a lot more than I did in the past. Growing up, we were taught to be confident and taught to have, you know, self belief. I think those are valuable qualities to have. But it's also really, really valuable to uh, listen and understand other people's pains, other people's perspectives, other people's uh, worldviews, in order to try to find a way to to bridge to a goal or objective. And and in certain instances, you know, listening allows you to understand that hey, this is this is either a situation or a person or a, a, a group that I really don't want to be involved in or have any relationship with.
1: So Um, what advice do you have to to anyone who might have an idea for a beverage product um, startup? What advice would you give them? Oh, man,
2: look, I'm a huge optimist in innovation and in, in building value. Anytime you can build value, it doesn't matter how much the odds are stacked against you. Because in this industry, in this space, I think with any startup, the odds are really stacked against you. You know, just be prepared for that. But yeah, do it and figure out how you can be different than what's available and how you can communicate that to your customers and how you can do that easily. I have to say that uh, especially the millennials in this industry, they have really innovated a lot of different things, not the least of which is how to get product into consumers' hands. So there's a company on the East Coast that built out an entire text message system where they were taking orders and delivering orders just through SMS services. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, right? Sure. Amazing. You know, stuff like that is truly disruptive. And there's always opportunities. There's always untapped ideas that no matter how stale and crusty the industry looks from the outside, and, and very large parts of the industry will be, there's always opportunity for disruption. It's just a question of you know, how hard are you willing to work? How effectively can you achieve your objectives? And, and then um, you know, luck plays a big role in it, and uh, funding plays a big role in it. Because until you can achieve scale, growing a business requires investment in capital. So
1: let's talk a little bit about the funding thing. What as a son of immigrants, Egyptian, Saudi Muslim guy pitching to what is essentially the white world of investors. What was that like for you?
2: Interesting. For sure. Uh, probably part of the reason that we've been bootstrapped for six day one. <laughs> um, um, it's, it's hard to miss like some of the, the biases that exist, you know, there are these pitch competitions that, that exist. And, you know, I, I've gotten really good at identifying who the winners will be based on oh, that's a variety of factors. And, and it, and it just is the way that it is right now. And you don't have to talk to me to understand that. I mean, talk to how many female founders are funded, right? right. That's, that's a statistic that will. Which is we'll, very we'll low speak. for those
1: that are listening just and black founders as well. That's right. That's right.
2: And, and, you know, it's a, it's, it's just another thing that we have to work through. Yeah.
1: Um, anything else you want to add before we, anything that we didn't cover? I was just going to say the thing for me that's been interesting
2: is I love that more uh, first generation, second generation American Muslims are, are starting to go outside of that sort of you know cookie cutter role of, you know, you just have to, fulfill the the community expectation and and just you know follow in the same footsteps because there are so many areas of influence that we can have if we can just start to get outside of ourselves a little bit right and and one of the reasons that i really love what you're doing and, and i want to tell you congratulations for making this show and you know i i I hope that you will continue to expand this and, and have guests on here that are far more interesting than I am <laughs> because, because, you know, there really are a lot of interesting Muslims out there doing amazing things, you know, in every walk of life. And it's, it's great to have a platform for people to be able to, to see that and well, not see it, hear it. in, in the case of this podcast, yeah. but,
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And I feel like every day we're 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 finding more and more American Muslims that are doing cool things. And so, yeah, this is what we're trying to do. So appreciate yeah. you joining the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. My conversation with Ziad Musa was recorded in February 2021. You can find out more about his company, Tolua, on its website, drinktalua.com. We'll have links to that in the show notes. I highly recommend their new product made from date seeds called Metadate. They have four different flavors, and oat milk latte is my favorite. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. Please drop us a line at feedback at if you have any ideas on how we can improve the show. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafelion Media. Today's show was researched, produced, and edited by Lindsay Gamble, Marconato, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson created our music. Check us out at americanmuslimproject.com. <music>